So let's turn, if you will, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I'm going to read to you a few verses in this chapter as we started looking through it last week. There are some things that we need to recognize in it this week. Now, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this, the Bible is, is a very compressed literature. In other words, you could take a verse and you could find a thousand things that God is saying to us through that one statement. Um, you cannot scrape the bottom of a verse. It is eternal. There's so much meaning in every single statement Jesus made. And so we have to take note of what He meant by what He said. And so that's why today I would like to go through with you and show you how God overcomes our resistance toward Him. As a fallen sinful human being, the Bible says we do not seek after Him. The Bible says we do not desire Him. The Bible says we are an enemy of God. But in His love and His goodness, His love for us and His goodness toward us, He overrides our resistance toward Him and He saves us. It's like that father that sees his child playing in the street and the child wants to go and grab the ball that's, that's rolling into the street and the father sees the truck coming and he runs. And even though the son is trying to get away from the father so he can get to the ball he's trying to get, even though he's trying to get away from the father that's reaching out to grab him out of the street, the father overcomes his resistance and pulls him away from that oncoming traffic. God does the same for those whom He saves. In John 6, 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Two words, very important there, the word all and the word will. All will come to me. So Jesus is clearly saying, not that all humans who ever lived will come to Him. It is clearly stated that all that the Father gives to Jesus, all those whom the Father has given Him, those ones will come to Him, every single one of them. No other logical conclusion can be reached than to say, all who do not come to Christ, ultimately, because some people take long to come to Christ. Some people take their whole life to come to Christ. <laughs> but there's no other logical conclusion that can be reached than to say all who do not come to Christ ultimately were not given to Jesus by the Father because all who were given to Jesus by the Father actually comes to Him. Now there's a name in theology for this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of uh, irresistible grace. The doctrine of irresistible grace. It's better stated in this way, the doctrine of effectual grace. In other words, those whom the Father reaches to save, He actually effectually saves. He doesn't try to save you from the oncoming traffic. He actually saves you. It's called the effectual grace of God, which simply means as fallen creatures, we have a nature that is naturally resistant toward God. We see Him as our enemy. We attempt to get away from Him. We resist Him in every way. Yet because of His love, He overcomes our resistance in order to effectually save us. Why? Because He's good. That's what makes Him good. The question we're going to answer today is, how does God effectually 
overcome fallen man's resistance toward himself. How does God do this? Because the moment you talk about the irresistible grace of God, people go like, God will never force any man. God doesn't force. God does not put a gun to anybody's head. God doesn't make you do anything. So the question is, how does He therefore overcome your resistance to save you? That's the question. How does He do this? So John, John chapter 6 shows us a lot about this. So let's go to two verses down to John 6, 39. It says, and this is the will of Him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. And He says, this is the will of Him who sent me. This is His will, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Can everybody say all? <laughs> okay, so He will lose how much of those? None. He will not lose any that the Father has given Him. You see, all come to me, even though those who come to me will be imperfect, even those who do come to me will be wandering, they will fall, they will trip, they will stumble, they will make mistakes, they will sin. They are not perfect. But they will come to me because they know they're not perfect. <laughs> Those who don't run to Christ is because they have yet to have a revelation just of how bad they really are. Anybody who discovers just how sinful they really are and how sinful their past is, they will run to Christ. But you see, the thing is, somehow, if you had to ask any one individual, hey, if we can take all of your thoughts, past, present, all of your thoughts and your heart's desires, and we can project it onto a screen in front of all these people. You would run out of this room in horror, would you not? So we really do know ourselves. The problem isn't that we don't know that we are bad and that we are sinful and that we are fallen and that we are rotten at the core. That's not the problem. The problem is we don't care that we are because we don't know, we don't recognize the fact that we have sinned against the holy God. Every one of my sins is against God. Because somebody says, well, you know, lusting doesn't, lusting doesn't really harm anybody. Well, that wasn't the point. When David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. Against you, God, have I sinned. You were made in the image and the likeness of God, and your life is to reflect who He is. And every time you sin, you misrepresent a perfectly holy God. Your sin is a misrepresentation of your Creator. And that's a sin against Him. He made you in His image and likeness. And that's what sin is. You missed the mark. You simply didn't act the way God would have acted. And when we see how perfectly holy He is, in comparison to whom He is, we'll see how, mis how absolutely we misrepresent Him. We miss the mark in such a big way. And so here's the problem. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. It's only a psychopath that would say, well, would say, well, you know what, that person's sin? Don't worry about it, you know. We don't need a judge. We don't need justice. They can just keep sinning. And if everybody can just keep sinning and there's never any justice, can you imagine that kind of life? 
that will be what we call evil. So God is a just God, and He has to bring justice to all sin. Every single sin will be paid for either in Christ or in hell. Christ died upon a cross in place, in your place. He took upon Himself the punishment for your sin, so you don't have to be punished for your sin. But every sin will be punished. For those who are not in Christ, their sin is punished elsewhere. Right? But God, a just and good judge, will punish every sin. Are they in Christ or in hell forever? And so, here Jesus says, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me. In other words, even though they fall, even though they trip, even though they, are, they, they make mistakes, they sin, they're imperfect, He says, I won't lose any of them. I will preserve them. I will keep them. I will protect them. I will see them to the end. This is a different doctrine called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. A better way to say it is the doctrine of the, uh, uh, the, the, doctrine of the preservation of the saints. See, if you say the perseverance of the saints, it sounds like the saint has to keep himself preserved. He has to keep the, keep the uh, you know, you know hold, hold on to all standards and fulfill the law, and he has to keep his salvation. But the preservation of the saints, that's something. That's something else. That's when God preserves what He has given you, which is salvation. Can't be lost. Can't be lost. It's almost like you can't be unborn, can you? <laughs> You can't become an un-new creator. You see, when we are in Christ, we are a new creation, right? In Christ, you're a new creation. You can't become uncreated. You cannot be unborn. Why? Because He is the one who preserves what He has started. And it's all over the Bible. So this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, which is better, simply means that he is a good shepherd. He will not lose any of those, that the sh those sheep that God the Father has given him, even though we can't save ourselves and even though we couldn't stay saved if it was up to me, I wouldn't be saved and I wouldn't keep my salvation. Jesus, however, when I'm unfaithful, he remains faithful. He preserves us. He preserves you from the moment you are born again to the moment that you are taken up to be with Him forever. You see, it works like this, and we just dealt with this on a Wednesday night. The word justification is that He made you right on the cross. That's past tense. He says you were justified. Then the Bible says, and you are being sanctified, which is present tense, continuous tense. And then He says, and you will be glorified, future tense. So you are being saved in three places. You were saved at the cross 2,000 years ago. You were justified. He paid the price for your sins then. But however, right now you are being sanctified. You are being sanctified. In other words, you're becoming more and more like God. You're walking further and further away from the world. You are giving more and more of yourself to God. You are serving Him better this year than you did last year. You are, you are more sensitive towards sin now than what you used to be. You are being sanctified. He is saving you from sin right now. He paid for it already, and right now, 
you are reflecting Him more and more because you are being sanctified. And then when He comes, you will be glorified with Him in your resurrected body. So the Bible very, very specifically speaks of three different times or three different ways God is saving you past, present, and future. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. You go, Jacques, is this really scriptural that, that He will preserve me all the way to the end? He will keep me. He will protect me. Even if I run away, He will leave the 99 and come after me. Well, yes, absolutely. He's the good shepherd. He says, it says it all over the place. He is the author, in other words, he came up with, and he is the finisher of what? My faith. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. Most people believe that God saved them and now they have to hold on to their salvation. Not so, Philippians 1, 6. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy. Jude 1, 24. Somebody said this, if it was up to me, I would lose my salvation. If it was up to me, I will lose my salvation. Hey, anybody who doesn't believe that thinks way too highly of themselves. <laughs> Isn't that true? Anybody who thinks that they are able to keep themselves saved are thinking too high of themselves. No, no, He will finish the very thing He started in you. He is the author and He is the finisher. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He gets all the glory from beginning to end. You see, God doesn't lose any of His children. Let's jump a few verses further down. That same chapter, John 6, 42, it says... They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Because he was saying, hey, I'm like the manna that you saw in Moses' time. That bread that fell from heaven saved them from dying, from starving. That bread that fell from heaven and was their nutrition. He says, actually, that was a type of who I am. I am the bread that comes from heaven that saves you and sustains you. They said, what's he talking about? This kid, Jesus, who grew up in my neighborhood, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. In other words, for you who have all these arguments about how could he be Jesus? How could he be the Messiah? How could he come from God? What are all these great and lofty claims that he's making? For those of you who, who have a problem with it, don't worry about it. Jesus is saying, because only those who the Father has given me, only those whom the Father draws will come. You won't. But those whom the Father draws, they will come. Not might, will. So it says in verse 44, no one can come to me. There's an inability for them to come to him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, the prerequisite to coming to Christ is the fact that God's drawing and drawing and drawing that person. He says, and I will raise him up one on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will, be, they will all be taught by God. Then he says this, everyone 
who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, period. They do. It doesn't say everyone who has heard and learned from the Father might come to me. It says comes to me. Again, Jesus here reaffirms the truth regarding the doctrine of irresistible grace. He does overcome the resistance of those whom the Father has given Him. And the Father draws them to Christ and they come to Christ because they want to come to Christ. And we'll see that in a minute. The question is, how does this happen? How does God overcome a person's resistance without coercing or forcing them to do so? Because many people who, who argue this doctrine, they go like, well, now you're going to have all these people who didn't want to come, but God made them come. You know? Now you have all these people in heaven who really want to be in hell so bad. <laughs> and you have people in hell that really wanted to be in heaven so bad, but hey, God didn't choose them, man. So, well, not their fault. So that's the objection and the argument, which is a st two straw men arguments. But because we have to understand how God takes this resistant, recalcitrant rebel, and He overcomes that rebel's resistance. In love, He does so that that resistant rebel that is recalcitrant suddenly has so much love for God that where he was resistant, now he can't but run to God. So in this next discourse Jesus has with his listeners, he tells them that he is the manna from heaven. And only those who eat of his flesh and drink of his blood will live forever. <laughs> okay, now just to put... Now, of course, they... They totally recoiled at this idea because they thought he was speaking to them about cannibalism. And cannibalism was forbidden under the law. Now, who are these people Jesus is speaking to? These are the people who were with him the day before where he was teaching and everybody got hungry. There were 5,000 of them. Everybody got hungry and he took this, boy's, this little boy's lunch few loaves of bread and fish, and, he, and it started multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. It was a miracle until everybody was fed. Just like in Moses' time, the manna kept on falling and falling until everybody was fed. So Jesus was multiplying the bread and multiplying the bread until everybody was fed. He was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of who He really is. Those are the same people that the next day jumped on boats and crossed the water to come and look for him. And when he saw them, he said to them, you guys look at these miracles and you don't interpret them for what they are saying to you. They are saying that I am the Messiah. They are affirming who I am, the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. I am he whom God has sent from heaven to save you. That's what that miracle is saying. But you aren't reading that miracle this way. The only reason you jumped on a boat and came after me once again, you are following me, is because you want to eat the bread I make. You want all the gifts I can offer you. Like last week we talked about certain reasons people come to church. If they don't come to church for Christ, they can come to church for other reasons. They want to belong to a community because can't find friends anywhere else. You know, like, might as well find a friend in church. Looking for a church girl to marry, you know, 
<laughs> you know, they, they, they like to be part of communities for everything but Christ. And that's not the case here. But we have to be reminded of that. And Jesus said to them, you guys aren't really my disciples. You guys are just trying to get all the benefits you can get from me. These are the people Jesus is speaking to. So now, when he said, no one can come to me unless a father draws him, and that's why you don't come. And everyone who has heard from the Father and learned from the comes to me, and you aren't coming to me because you haven't learned from the Father. And he, he is in between the lines, really pretty straight up, telling them who they are. And the more they started arguing, the more strange this conversation becomes. Now he's saying, unless you eat from my flesh and drink from my blood. Look, Jesus is long before how to win friends and influence people was written. <laughs> He's not trying to win these people over. He's not using political correctness. He's not doing any of that. He's getting, it's getting worse. Unless you eat from my flesh and drink from my blood, you won't live forever. But if you do, you will live forever. Just like when you ate from that manna. Many of his listeners were so offended by what he was saying because it sounded to them like cannibalism, of course, they were angry. And Jesus then declares that there are those who simply will not believe His words. They will misunderstand His statements. They will misjudge His decisions. They will misinterpret His teachings. They will misread all of His warnings. And then He goes ahead and explains as to why that is. In the next portion, John 6, 64 through 65. It says, but there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. He's saying this to those who are following him. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. When did he, when did he find out that they were not believing? From the beginning. He's always known that they do not believe. That's what it says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Here Jesus doubles down on the fact that no one can come to him unless they were given to him by his Father in heaven. In other words, unless Father God gives them eyes to see, they will remain blind. Unless he gives them ears to hear, they will remain deaf to the truth. Then let's move to verse 71. 66 through 71, verse 66 through 71. John 6, verse 66 through 71. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Well, no kidding. At this point, I mean, this conversation has gotten so strange. <laughs> the disciples, it says many, many of them turned back and no longer walked with Him. It's getting too cold in here, Dave. I'm sorry. So here are the disciples walking away from him. So Jesus said to his twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have, the, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the only one of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you? I mean, look at this. He says, Did I not choose you? The twelve. Yet, one of you is a devil. <laughs> Now this conversation gets really strange. <laughs> he says, I chose all of you and one of you, the devil, meaning I also chose 
one of you to be the devil. That's what he's saying here. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, he spoke of him, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray Christ. So before we look at how God overcomes our resistance, we have to just look at the scripture and understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus told his disciples, I chose you, and it was also I who chose the one among you who is a devil. In other words, God even chooses evil to do his bidding. God ordains evil. God uses evil for his own purposes. He chose Judas for this purpose, for this reason. The point is here that Jesus is more God than what those disciples ever knew. Why? Because he who was standing in front of him, even Satan is God's devil. God is supreme over all. He uses whatever He wants to. He ordains as He wishes, and His purposes will stand. Now, how does God overcome in a resistance toward somebody like you, you and I that have resistance toward Him? That is our question here today. Now, this might take a quick turn, but watch this. In the Old Testament... Circumcision meant something very, very specific. Circumcision was a cutting away of the flesh. A cutting away of the flesh. Now remember, our flesh is sinful. Circumcision is a sign. It's a symbol. It's a cutting away of the flesh. That mark that's left in the person after they have been circumcised is the seal on that person that they are in covenant with God. So every Jewish boy on the eighth day would get circumcised, and that becomes the sign that they are part of the covenant, God's covenant. So circumcision was, of course, a big deal, understood. But that's in the old covenant. This all changed in the New Covenant. The New Covenant, the circumcision was no longer done in the flesh. It was now a divine act of circumcising the heart. Cutting away the flesh and the seal that there is now a covenant between this person and God. The New Covenant no longer requires an outward circumcision. The New Covenant, the New Testament, Christ the dispensation of Christ, no longer requires that outward circumcision, but demands an inward circumcision, and a circumcision of the heart. So the circumcision in the flesh was always a type of what God was going to do in reality in the new covenant. We'll see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It says, A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. In other words, he's saying just because somebody's circumcised doesn't mean they're part of this covenant that God made with humanity through Christ. Verse 29 says, No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Can you all see that? So in the New Covenant, circumcision 
is no longer in the flesh, it is in the heart. Not written by, not, not by the written code, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And herein, ladies and gentlemen, is where we find the answer to our question, how does God overcome our resistance toward Him? He cuts away. He marks and He seals. The heart, the seat of your desire, the seat of your will, the seat of your emotions. God goes straight to the heart and circumcises the heart. So in the new covenant, God cuts away the resistant heart. He cuts away the callous through circumcision and gives that person a brand new heart, which is now a heart that does not resist Christ, but that comes to Christ willingly. No coercion, no forcing, willingly. A heart that believes. A heart that repents. A believing, repenting heart, because this heart now desires God and desires to be right with God. That's why I like to say it over and over and over again. It takes God to want God. Anybody who wants God has been touched by God. The one who just resists God, trivializes God, has no time for God, isn't interested in God, that person there ought to beg God for mercy. And if you have that person in your life, you ought to beg God for mercy upon that person's life. And so, this is, this is the nature of the new creation, the nature of the new creature in Christ. You might say, well, great, what happens when a person is circumcised at the heart? How will we know? Am I circumcised at the heart? Well, of course, it's a seat of your will seat of your desires. It's not that suddenly you don't have a flesh that tempts you. It's not like suddenly I'm perfect. Whoa, <laughs> you know, he, cut my, he circumcised my heart and out came this perfect human being. That's exactly not what happened. <laughs> what now happens is when this flesh sins, this heart weeps. When this flesh revels in what it loves to do, this heart repents and mourns because this heart has been circumcised. That is a sign that a person has a circumcised heart. The person who has been circumcised at heart immediately wants to declare to the world that it has. It wants to declare to the world that they have been circumcised, this very same world that they have been freed from. I mean, think about it. <laughs> the moment you're free, like, hey, I'm free, everybody. I'm free. Look at me. <laughs> you know, that's the natural response from the person who was just freed from the world, wants to show the world that they, were, they are now free. That is exactly why salvation and baptism always, always, always goes together. Salvation and baptism is always in close proximity to one another. So I want to show you a few things about baptism, which I think is very powerful to the person who has a circumcised heart. Number one, baptism is one of the most primary means in which we are to declare faith in Christ. 
it's one of the most, uh, the most primary means which we declare, I have faith in Christ. I have faith. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 and 38 says it. It says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Just to give you context, what's happening here is the Holy Spirit just fell on the day of Pentecost. All those upon whom the Holy Ghost fell, they were speaking in tongues. And the strangers were walking by, the Gentiles were walking by going like, what happened to these guys? Are they drunk? Peter gets up, he says, no, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Nobody's, nobody's had any alcohol at this, time, this early morning hour. He says, but he tells them about Jesus who rose from the dead went to be with the Father, now we have the Holy Spirit. And He gives them this whole history lesson. And then He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus I'm telling you about, the very one you crucified, this very one you killed on a cross, God has made Him both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. Circumcised in their hearts. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And this is the response to, from every person who's ever been circumcised at heart. What can I do for God now? What must I do? Tell me. I'd love to do it. I just want to do what God is asking of me. You see, and, and, and unfortunately, the church today has been filled with people who said, I don't want to go to hell. Well, then quickly pray this prayer with me. Just say, say this after me. It's very Romanism, isn't it? Like, just here's another bead, pray this one, you'll be done. You know, say these words, you'll be done. That is not how this happens. And so the church has been filled and filled with people who had fire insurance because they recited a statement. There was never a circumcision of the heart. How do you know it? Because they never go like, now what? Now what? Anything else? Tell me. Anything. <laughs> Anything. He owns me. I am His. He saved me. I didn't, need to be, I didn't deserve to be saved. There's no entitlement on my end. There's only faithfulness that I now want to give to Him. And that's exactly what they're saying. They say, okay, so... Uh, Brothers, what shall we do? They were convicted. They needed to know how to be right with God. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Do those two things. Because right now, that heart that was just, got, just got cut by God, that is now a believing heart that repents. So repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that seals you for the day of redemption. So baptism is, the one, is one of the most primary means in which we are to declare faith in Christ. Number two, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. You see, in the Old Testament, people would get circumcised in the flesh no matter what was in the heart. And now in the New Testament, because of what's in the heart, there is now an outward sign. They had an outward sign without an inward, without a, without a, uh, an honest 
interior. <laughs> now they have a new inside, and the outside proves it. So baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Colossians 2 verse 11. It says, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried, in other words, what happened there is when you were circumcised by Christ, that is when your resistance towards Christ was overcome. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Buried in baptism. Can everybody please say buried in baptism? So when you are baptized, you are buried in this water grave. This water grave, it's a sign, it's a, it's, it's a symbol, thank you. That's what I was looking for. And that symbol right there is the outward sign of an inward truth. Number three, baptism is public, is a public enactment of dying to self and coming alive to Christ. Romans 6 verse 3 and 7. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. We too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in death, we will certainly also be crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So here it's a very clear picture of how we are buried with Him through baptism. We are buried with Him through baptism. And this is, if you grab somebody and you force them under the water, did, did they get a circumcised heart? No. The, 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 other, the other way around is true. If somebody has a circumcised heart, they want to display what happened to them. They, would, they died to self, they were buried, and they rise in Christ. So baptism is an enactment of dying to self and coming alive in Christ. Number four, baptism is your appeal to God for a clear conscience. Baptism is your appeal to God for a clear conscience. 1 Peter 3 verse 21 says, Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. In what way? Not as a removal from, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. How many of you want to be saved from a guilty conscience? You know? Baptism, which corresponds to this, to Christ's death, now saves you. As an appeal to God, for a good conscience. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Because Christ was raised, you were forgiven. Uh, if anything's ever been true for me, this right here is true. Then number five, the natural response of the circumcised heart is public baptism. The natural response of the circumcised heart is public baptism. Acts chapter 8, verse 30 and 38 says, So Philip 
ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Here is this man sitting in a chariot and his horses, his horses are running down the street with, him, with care, pulling this chariot and as he's in this chariot, he's trying to read. Can you imagine what that must have been like? <laughs> and he's trying to read the book of Isaiah and this is a Gentile and God gets Philip to pull up his robe and start running as fast as the horses are running. And he's running next to this chariot. I'm trying to picture this thing. And uh, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> and he says, how can I unless someone guides me? Like, I don't even, I have no idea what I'm reading, but I'll understand if somebody tells me. He says, and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip, of course, gets into the chariot with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, quote, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. This is Old Testament, right? Prophesying what was going to happen. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Talking about Jesus so clearly. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, and the, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water! Exclamation mark. See, here's water! Stop the chariots! <laughs> what prevents me from being baptized? I just heard about Jesus. My next obvious thing is I need to, be, I need to get baptized. I need to declare publicly what's happening to me personally. I need to tell the world I'm no longer a slave. I need to declare to heaven I'm one of yours. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture he told him that the good news about Jesus and as they were going along the road they came to water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. So we see baptism and salvation goes hand in hand. Baptism, one of the most primary means in which we are to declare faith in Christ. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism is a public enactment of dying to self, to the world, and coming alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Baptism is your appeal to God asking God for a clear conscience. God, I want to be dead to myself. I want my past to be gone. I want it to be wiped away. It's like, you know, when the... <laughs> it clears your conscience. And then we see that the natural response of the circumcised heart is public baptism. Public baptism. So this happens to be a really uh, good time for us as we've gone through John chapter 6. 
talking about how God overcomes our resistance. And when He does, we say, now what can I do? He says, well, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Become a testimony of what He has done to you. Die to yourself. Draw a line in the sand. Bury yourself in that, in that water grave. Come alive. When you come up, when you go down, it's you dying. When you come out of that water, it's you coming alive unto God. And from here on, that's a new life you now live in Christ Jesus. And so we want to make sure that those of you um, who have yet to be baptized this way, because some people have gotten baptized in a very religious way. There was nothing real about it. For many people, it wasn't even their decision. It was somebody else's decision. And uh, there was no other, other possible way of becoming a member of that church. And so people baptize, get baptized for all the wrong reasons. And if that is you and God has circumcised your heart, then you have to say, well, hey, what's next? I need to go through the waters of baptism. I want to have this public expression of what has happened personally. And I want to, it's almost like a, it's like a wedding ring, right? This, when I say I do, uh, we exchange vows and we put rings on our fingers. And this ring doesn't make me married. It just tells the world that I am now married, right? And that is baptism. Baptism comes after you believe, after your heart has been circumcised, after your resistance has been overcome by God. Then it's time to get baptized. And after we give the vows I do, that is when we put this seal on our ring, on our fingers, in order to show the world this is what has happened to us. We have been united together as one, and that's what baptism shows. You and Christ in the grave, you and Christ rise.